This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. That to me is really, really important in terms of being not just willing to, but eager to connect with people across difference. And to do so, again, not in a patronizing way, but in a way where I expect to benefit and where I expect them to be a source of my learning as well. I think that keeps us humble. Mm. You know, it means every time you go in, you're going in as a learner, not just a teacher. You're going Mm. in as a receiver and not just a corrector of all the ways that they've got things wrong. Gotcha. That, That disposition makes all the difference. This is Where You're From, an origin story podcast at the intersection of faith and culture that digs into the influences and experiences that shape who we are today. Join us as we gain insight into the Bible's wisdom for all, regardless of where we're from. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thank you for joining me again on Where You're From. This week, we're talking with Duke Kwan and this one cuts deep. Not only does Duke know the personal struggles of experiencing racism, he also has a deep passion for repairing the brokenness caused by racism that others have experienced. You won't want to miss this. A quick bio before we start. Duquan is the lead pastor of Grace Meridian Hill, a neighborhood congregation in the Grace DC network in Washington, DC, and co-author of Reparations, a Christian call to repentance and repair. Please join me as I ask Duquan, where you're from? I was born in Ohio, but moved to California when I was two. Mm. And that's where I grew up, man. Okay. That's a pretty extreme jump from the Midwest to the extreme Southwest. What prompted that move? Yeah, my family was in the Midwest for a little bit, was in Ohio. And my dad went to California for a work conference. As the family legend goes, it was in the middle of a terrible cold spell and snowstorm in Ohio that was so bad that every day after work, my dad had to take out the car battery, out of the hood of the car, and leave it in the kitchen in order just to be able to start the car every morning. Oh, wow. Then in the middle of that storm, he flies out for a work conference in Southern California, and it's like 80 degrees. <laughs> and he said, we're moving. Long story short, basically decided to haul the family over to California. He's got a pioneering spirit, doesn't Mm -hmm. like to go down the roads that are often traveled upon. And so, went out to a small desert town. At that time, had maybe 10, 15,000 people in it. Mm. So, about two hours from LA, halfway between LA and Vegas, and set up shop. And that's where I grew up, man, just riding my dirt bike around and playing outside all the time and hiding from the heat. It gets hot there, 110 degrees in the summertime and cold in the wintertime too, teens, 20s, right? It's a wild place to grow up. I am curious, like what kind of job did he have that could just allow him to travel like that and relocate? Yeah, my dad was a doctor. He Mm -hmm. was an oncologist at the time in the town where I grew up. Cancer patients were having to travel 
over an hour every day for their radiation therapy treatment. Mm. And so seeing that, he said, no, let's set up shop here and uh, see what we might be able to provide neighbors in this area. So there was a business opportunity. Got it. And that's where we went out. He loved the adventure. My mom, on the other hand, she grew up in Korea in the city and appreciated civilization (laughs) and and green. Korea is a very green country. And so going out in the brown tumbleweed filled desert, I mean, she still mutters about this even today, right? She's like, I don't know how we ended up. Well, she does know and she blames it on my dad. (laughs) It was an unusual, unique, but formative time and place uh, to grow up. One of the things I notice immediately is you have this very interesting name, Duke. I think of the Dukes of Hazard, like, you know what I mean? And then Quan, which not the same region. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the origin behind your name. Yeah. Well, my name was given to me by my parents. We still have in their home the original baby name book (laughs) where they found the name. And it's really cool, actually. There's my name, Duke, in the D section, and it's circled. So, it's right there. You know, history frozen in time. (laughs) They liked the Latin roots of it, which are leader, something like that. Mm. But it corresponds to my Korean name, which I think my grandfather gave to me according to Korean traditional naming practices. My Korean name is Dokseun. You can hear that sort of D-U-K kind of similarity of sound. And so, that's where my first name came from. And my last name is Kwan. It's a Korean last name. My parents are both from South Korea. Okay. Not one of the most common or biggest Mm. Korean names or families out there, but fairly common. Okay. So, you find yourself two years old from the frigid Midwest to the hot southwestern desert. What was it like for you growing up there? You know, as a kid, where you grow up is just where you grow up. You don't know any different, any better. I loved it. What it meant was I grew up being outside a lot, riding our bikes, roaming around, because again, it was our home and then just lots of open desert all around us. As a kid, that meant just wandering around. And, you know, back then, parents just let you go. They didn't know where we were. You know, I was just always wandering around. So, I've got two sisters. And we played together a lot, of course. But there were times when they were doing their thing and I was doing my thing. I'm the youngest. So, I've got two older sisters. But it was was a good time and place to grow up. I mean, it, it was pretty formative to my identity formation process, too, as well since it was a place where there weren't many Asian Americans, especially Korean Americans at all. You know, my parents, my family, a pretty traditional Korean family. We were raised with a lot of traditional Korean values, even though we were also raised sort of to be fully contributing citizens of American society as well. My parents were very deliberate about that in terms of celebrating all the right holidays and being a part of all the normal American civic practices and cultural mm. things and all of that, Halloween and and Christmas and, and, and all the rest. But what it meant, though, was we didn't have a whole lot of community, just enough mm. uh, of, of Korean Americans around us, but it just meant having to figure out who you were, sometimes through bumpy roads, Mm. being confident in that, being secure in that, um, but also dealing with some of the insecurities and, mm. and and the anxieties of that as well. You know, one thing that's kind of always an interesting journey or moment is when someone discovers, because like you said, as kids, you're just out playing, right? And you're just right. wanting to be around. So, you don't necessarily come into that thinking, I'm different. But there's usually some moment 
you know, where that comes to the surface? Like, when would you say that moment was for you? Or do you remember a time where it went from just the kind of naive, you know, fun, loving, we're all the same here to, hmm, there's something different yeah. in terms of how I'm received? You know, I've thought about this question a lot. I, I think just the general experience of difference I think that emerged in my consciousness and in my subconscious sort of identity pretty early on. I mean, again, because my parents would speak Korean in the home, we would eat Korean food. So literally the moment you walk out the door, you know you're living in a different world. And the minute you come back in, you know you're moving back into a different kind of world. And so even if I couldn't articulate that, I think it was pretty clear early on that, you know, this is my family. I, I, I don't think it was necessarily a negative thing. There wasn't any kind of negative casting early on. That probably came later on, later mm-hmm. elementary school, when there was some discomfort, and especially through junior high, where there's just more tension. And, and you sit there and you're like, wait a minute, my family is not like the Brady Bunch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like one day you realize, you know, uh, which of course we grew up watching all the time. But as far as negative difference is concerned, I do remember my very first um, explicitly racial or racist experience, and that was um, in the first grade. And that was in a, in the schoolyard playing with some boys. And these were kids that I got along with all the time. So I don't know where this came from, but we were playing kickball, and one of the kids just decided he didn't want me to play that time. I don't know why. We You know, we were friends. We played all the time. But, you know, he said, no, you can't play. I said, why can't I play? He said, because you have Korean balls. And that was this sudden, you know, of course, in, in that moment, I remember being confused, again, because it was this sort of like kiddish non sequitur, like, what? I don't even know how to process this. But I do remember the shame. And it had, you know, and the nature of that comment was this weird mixture of cultural and sexual, right? So it was sort of like, where do I go with this and how do I process it? But what I did come away with, though, was that lingering experience of shame. Yeah, wow. That's that's pretty intense, as, like you said, in first grade. But you said for the most part, that wasn't a normative scenario, even though it was a very pronounced moment. Did you tell anybody about that moment, your older sisters or your family, or you just kind of- I did not. I mentioned it to my sisters, uh, I can't remember, maybe 10 years ago. It just came up in conversation and both of them were like, what? So yeah, I mean, these are things you just just deal with on your own, right? And part of it is because you don't even know as a kid the significance of it. Hmm. And it's only when someone asks you later on in life, hey, when was your first experience of racism, whatever, that's when it comes to mind and you're like, oh, that was it. And that was a big deal. Yeah. In its own quiet sort of way. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So moving forward, you know, when would you say your spiritual journey really took root? Yeah. So my dad was not a Christian in my earliest years. So he grew up sort of more in traditional Korean society, which is more Confucian um, by cultural tradition. Uh, What I mean by that for my dad is just these traditional philosophical beliefs around the right way to live, respect of family, duty to community, these kinds of ways of living, but it's not a religion. It's not a religious sort of worldview. And so my dad coming in, you know, strong-headed, practical man committed to his work and to his family, but no real commitment to God. That was something that he grew into. And meeting Christ was a big change, a big transformation for him. 
And he's a very intellectually oriented person, so skeptical and proud. My mom, on the other hand, grew up in a Christian or nominally Christian kind of home. And uh, at some point, she starts slipping in some sermon tapes into the car rides, you know, into the, the tape deck back then, <laughs> and starts exposing my dad to some good preaching. And we find ourselves in the living room of one of our family friends, also a Korean-American family, uh, again, one of the few. And he happens to be an elder in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And so he's hosting Bible studies on Wednesday nights in his home. And my parents are going, us, the kids, we're going just to go play. We're going off to the side and hanging out with our friends. And long story short, it was through that that my dad eventually got converted and came to put his trust in Christ. So I remember very distinctly my dad getting baptized mm. when I was about six years old and um, a very emotional experience for him. And that itself made an impact on me, right? So we've seen, oh, that something's happening here. <laughs> Dad's changed. Something's going on here. And so my parents from then on, obviously we were church going more than before, but they were new or newer to the Christian faith. And so, you know, it's not like we worship together as a family really, or we really put into practice practices of faith and spirituality in the home. That was just something that we were all figuring it out. My parents were just figuring it out themselves. And so I would say that that started my faith journey early on in terms of just exposure to the Bible, to the Christian faith, to the person of Christ. And then in some of my elementary school years, I also went to some Christian schools in the local area. And my parents sent us there. And so that also gave us more exposure, not only to Christian faith and scriptures, but also to a lot of Christian culture, mm -hmm. subculture. So for what it's worth in terms of an understanding of present day American evangelical culture. That's where I picked up a lot of that. It wasn't at home and it wasn't even necessarily the churches I was going to uh, with my family. It was because I was going to these very evangelically-ish Christian schools too. Got it. Got it. So one of the things that I experienced when I did a uh, travel journey called In Pursuit of Jesus, I went to a Singapore and I asked someone about their faith journey there, a pastor. And he basically just told me his dad's testimony. Mm. And you just did the same thing. So, this yeah. idea of filial piety mm. that essentially is the connection for you. Like, you saw your dad and then you kind of just began to go, okay, this is what we're doing, following Jesus. Yeah. Russell, it's funny that you point that out. You mentioned that because um, that, that is very true of me. That's not how I used to tell my faith story. That was kind of a conscious decision, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I would say it's both cultural in terms of sort of the, this cultural identification of myself in relation to my parents, my family, but also theological too. As a covenantal dude, Presbyterian person that I am, <laughs> understanding that our faith heritage, my faith heritage is uh, a story, the mm. writing of which began in the writing of my parents' faith story, um, these things being passed on and God working his redemption through families. So, you know, when people say, hey, what's your personal testimony? I say, well, let me tell you about my parents. That's where I start. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So what was the immediate difference? You mentioned the evangelical culture at your school that was maybe different from what you were experiencing. When you were just going to public schools. Uh, yeah. Well, I would say one thing that I am appreciative of is the way in which they taught us scripture. Yeah. So 
I to this day can recite Psalm 23 in the New King James because I memorized that as a first grader. Mm. I can tell you Psalm 121. I can tell you 1 Corinthians 13. I can tell you Isaiah 53, at least the middle portion of those verses, because we were forced to, in the most wonderful way, to (laughs) memorize Scripture. You talk about hiding the word in your heart. I mean, really, the payoff of that is lifelong. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, I went through a number of years of being cynical about or even contemptuous towards these Christian school years. At one point, I felt that way, but I, I think I've matured out of that to being able to see partially at least some of the blessings uh, that I took away from that time. So that w- that's one difference for sure in terms of exposure to the faith. But we pledged allegiance to the flag. We pledged allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Bible too. So we did that whole charade as well. So that's another difference. There was a lot of emphasis on things like the dress code, like no blue jeans. Because, you know, that's the slippery slope right there where schools wearing blue jeans. <laughs> or, or, or no uncollared shirts, right? You got it. So dress code was a big deal. And I'm sort of saying this tongue in cheek because for kids, you know, that stuff does matter or can matter and all that, right? Whatever. But there's a lot of cultural stuff wrapped up in that. Got it. So you also mentioned that there was later in middle school, high school is when you started to really feel the cultural ethnic difference. You know, at that point, I was going to the local public junior high school. And this school was huge. It was two grades, seventh and eighth grade, 1,600 kids. Wow. Overcrowded, fights breaking out every day. It was a wild scene, wild west, right? And it was predominantly white, but with a significant Hispanic and black minority contingency in the community. And that's where I began to experience uh both just the normal adolescent having a hard time fitting in, trying to be cool, you know, trying to find myself and wishing I were sitting in the back of the bus with the cool kids, mm. the eighth graders back there, right? That kind of – so that, some normal stuff, but then also some racial stuff too. I mean, that's where at that time a lot of the Hispanic kids began to pick on me and sort of push me around and mm. that was when I formed negative opinions, sad to say, right? Of Latin American folks because of just what that experience was in those middle years, something that I had to process in my later years, right? Mm. But that's that's where sort of bumping into different cultural groups and and trying to figure out where I fit in started to become a, a more heated experience, man. Middle school was so rough. I feel like- It's terrible. Seven, I mean, just, <laughs> I know I look back on it and I go, man, that was like seventh grade was just like the worst. I didn't- fully rebound into like sophomore year in high school, yeah. you know, whatnot. But, you know, how about for you? Did you start to find your footing, you feel like, in high school more? Yeah. I mean, like you said, man, junior high was pretty tough. Um, but in high school, I actually went to a boarding school that was about an hour away from home. And that school happened to be not only small, but about 50% Asian American. Hmm. So here's now the complete opposite experience where I'm surrounded now, and I would even say empowered now, as the majority group, or at least near majority, Mm. in this school. That was a powerful time for me because for the first time, looking around and seeing loads of people just like me. Mm. And again, not even just other people, but, you know, student body president or class president. It was like 
people that were actually stepping up in leadership or stars on on the football team or on the uh, basketball team, whatever, actually kids like me looking like me. So I would say that was a significant sort of identity shaping experience and time as well. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about what you felt like that contributed to your identity being around and seeing that kind of representation? Yeah, I'm in security. So finally, to be able to exhale a little bit in terms of not always having to negotiate culturally, not always having to explain yourself, or not always having to withdraw and sort of keep yourself at a safe distance where you could actually talk to people that understand where you're coming from or who's got the same issues with their parents that you do or who have Hmm. the same, you know, weird snacks from the Korean grocery store that you do, right? You know, uh, and, and, and you don't need to explain it or you can laugh about it or whatever. So security was a big thing. And just being able to find other people that you didn't have to explain yourself to, it's a big deal. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So you're there. What's the next step for you? Next big moment? Well, I would say, first of all, it was during those years that I actually got plugged into a youth group for the first time at a local church down the street. And this was a Korean church with kids my age, which I had never had in my church experience up to that point. So in high school, I found a church and a real dynamic youth leader and team of teachers, college students in the area that would come in and help lead these kids. And that changed my life. Mm -hmm. Who knows if I was converted at that particular time, but that was the first time that I really started getting more invested in understanding God's word and understanding the nature of the gospel and knowing Christ more personally and learning about what it means to be a Christian community. Mm -hmm. That was a big deal. Um, It sadly did not last in terms of, you know, a a mature faith and stuff and lots of ups and downs, which of course happens through those early years. But that was a significant part of my journey. And then, and then from there, went off to, to college um, and went to the other side of the country, yes. to, the, to, to the Northeast. Okay. So, tell us about where was that school and what was your experience there? Yeah, I went to Brown. Um, that's located in Providence, Rhode Island. You know, they were hard years in, in, in different ways, but had a great experience both educationally as well as spiritually. It was a positive experience for me. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot, loved what I was exposed to intellectually, culturally, and even spiritually. A very vibrant Christian community was there waiting for me. I wasn't ready for it, but, you know, like when I, you know, coming in as a freshman, I was turned away from the Lord, actually, at that time, but slowly got drawn back in by God's grace. And a great church community that was pretty significant to my eventual call to ministry as mm-hmm. a local church pastor. So, had a great, great time there. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. You know, as a Penn grad too, I often hear of kind of the almost just gloom and doom perspective that people have. And it's like, actually, you know, when you go to places that nurture the kind of intellectual rigor and right. and just engagement, it actually for me, strengthened my faith because mm. it mm. it prompted me to really have to think critically. And even the challenges I found were good. Yeah, I agree, man. Just to have the hardest questions presented to the Christian faith tested and tried and then to be proven durable 
right? Right there. Yep. And again, not in theory, but actually with your peers and in a community. Yes. It makes a big difference. I mean, I know, I know that's not everyone's experience of liberal universities. I, right. I know it can go sideways for some folks. But I appreciated it. I appreciated that sharpening. And I appreciated learning how to interact with people of very different views and mm-hmm. learning how to do so respectfully. Yeah. I, I really feel like it It helps me even to this day in ministry in a city like Washington, D.C., uh, yeah. to be able to walk alongside folks and not have a sort of a latent scorn mm. for their view of the world or their political convictions or of their moral differences to actually be able to say, let's walk, let's talk, and not to have a quiet contempt for them in my heart. It, it's huge. And that training began in college. Some of how I see you negotiate in these spaces, and that seems to be a, a thread in your own life, is that lesson of how do you engage with people who think different, with ideas that are challenging? Like, What's the theological grid that you use to talk about that discipline of how we engage. And like you said, not with a sense of contempt, but with the sense of a different approach. Yeah. I mean, I think at the foundation of it is the doctrine of the image of God, right? A Christian anthropology that says every person is crowned with dignity, whatever belief system they subscribe to, whatever difference they might have with the Christian faith in terms of their beliefs or values or lifestyle or whatever, they are crowned with glory. And we need to treat them that way. I need to treat them that way. And so that I think immediately demands a certain kind of respectful engagement with people. But I think even more than that, I think it has to do with our doctrine or convictions around common grace And what I mean by that is this idea that God, his grace, not only breaks into human hearts and souls in saving them, but also breaks through every institution, arena of life, every source of truth. And even if in fragmentary form, God actually brings the light of his truth, even through the most unlikeliest of people and places which then means to me that we've got something to learn from everyone and everywhere. I think it invites a kind of curiosity. It invites a sense of like every conversation I have, even with a person that I know maybe they're wrong or maybe I know they're dead wrong, but here's still a conversation that can sharpen me, that I can benefit from, that I can get some fragment of God's truth through. And not only in terms of its content, but also in the manner. I mean, that I can actually find a friend, <laughs> mm. discover a friend in this engagement. And so I, I think that makes us more curious. It makes us more willing to engage. It makes us more willing to be helpful to the individual. Um, that to me is really, really important in terms of being not just willing to, but eager to connect with people across difference and to do so again, not in a patronizing way, but in a way where I expect to benefit and where I expect them to be a source of my learning as well. I think that keeps us humble. Mm. You know, it means every time you go in, you're going in as a learner, not just a teacher. You're going mm. in as a receiver and not just a corrector right. of all the ways that they've got things wrong. Gotcha. That, that disposition makes all the difference. Nah, it's so good. So, did you go from just like Brown to DC? I didn't. So, it was in the midst of a poli sci degree, so uh, uh, focused on political theory. 
that I started to sense um, a call to ministry. And I felt like I wanted uh, not to jump into seminary right away, but rather wanted to work, grow up, pay my taxes, and read before starting my formal training. So that's why I decided to work at a management consulting firm for a few years first. So worked in strategy consulting. And I loved it. And I was kind of bivocational at the time because I still worked with a church very closely, a campus ministry, you know, led Bible studies, led music and different things in the life of the church. But did my day job very much with the mindset of that too being training for ministry because I mm. wanted to be sort of vocationally aware and have a kind of wisdom that I can gain from being a, a fellow church member in the workplace that might, I was uh, banking on, help me to be a better pastor one day, having been in my member's shoes myself. And so worked for a couple of years and then eventually realized I just needed more help in my reading and my personal study and said, it's time for me to actually go to seminary. Where was that? In Providence or something? Yeah, that was in Providence. So okay. I stayed right there, you know, and then started commuting up to Gordon-Conwell, which is north of Boston, mm-hmm. and started my formal seminary training then. Yeah. So, all right. You know, Gordon-Conwell, Boston, Brown, a little bit different. Uh, culturally, what was that like for you? Yeah, no, I had a lot of friends already in the seminary. And so it felt like a pretty natural transition. Mm -hmm. I had already been benefiting from the writings and teachings of books of the professors at Gordon-Conwell before going there. And so was actually attracted to the intellectual rigor and the quality of the teaching there and and so the transition wasn't hard at all. In fact, I was so hungry, so eager to learn. But I'll say too, I was studying at the seminary, but then not really spending a huge amount of time in the community. And, and I think I lost out because of that, but I had to get back down to do ministry during those years constantly. And so I'll say I may not have gotten as much of a sort of introduction to the evangelical culture that came along with that seminary at the time, as much as I might have otherwise have. Um, But again, the the transition there, at least from a a learning perspective and the rigor of its teaching and and all that. I mean, that's what Gordon-Conwell is known for. Um, That's what it had to offer. And so I was grateful for that. No, that sounds great. What would you say was like one or two, like just particular nuggets that you feel like either this insight or this way of helping me think really set me up well for the next phase of ministry? I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff, but just to to name two, it really was a unique thing to be able to be in a multi-denominational context. You know, especially because I'm presently in the PCA and the Presbyterian Church in America actually has a fairly significant presence in Gordon-Conwell. But you have people from Assemblies of God, Pentecostal traditions, you got people, Baptists, Methodists, otherwise. And so not only to be in the presence of students that were all fellow learners together and learning to respect each other across those differences, but to see that modeled across the faculty. And so, of course, there's still a common thread that binds them together, all as evangelical scholars and and teachers. But to have instilled in me early on the value, the virtue of mutual respect across Christian differences, Mm. the best kind of Christian diversity, it just taught me to hold 
my convictions humbly, mm. to respect those that believe differently and still love the Lord Jesus with all their heart, and to be able to not shy away from those differences of conviction, yeah. but to find points of unity and ways in which we can partner together for the sake of the mission of God, right? That was a huge lesson. That is a huge. And I mean, one that our culture desperately needs, right? Because I think one of the things that happens when you're only in our enclaves or boxes is we allow the just so arguments to get so big. We can just assume the worst about those who see differently or understand right. differently than us. But I think what I've seen from you is you have always emphasized or focused on the beauty and the potential of the places that God sent you and not necessarily the narrative that existed maybe in a certain subculture about yeah. how that place is seen. Yeah. And where do you think that came from though? Yeah. I don't know. I, I think, I mean, for one, I've always had a love of learning hmm. and whether through study or through experience. And so I think I, I just always want to soak it up wherever I'm going. I want to experience new things and I want to take in a new community and then sort of think through what it means to to be fully present as a neighbor and to love God and love neighbor no matter. So, so I think the newness of a place or even the challenges of a place are always something I'm attracted to rather mm. than something that I'm repelled by or intimidated by. That's not to say it isn't tiring at times or not hard right. at times and stuff. But I, I also know not to believe the press all the time that there might be a narrative about a given place or or there might even be some partial truths about, you know, the challenges or the dangers, you know, faith-wise or whatever about yeah. certain cities or places or institutions or people or whatever. Yeah. Sure. But let me go find out for myself. Let me yeah. go learn as I try to love. When we come back, we'll hear from Duke about what the Bible says on how to repair the sins of the past. That's coming up next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Hey, y'all, before we get back to our conversation with Duke Kwan, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with 1K Few. This is where you're from. My church was literally next to a trap house. We would literally have them come to church. Like, we would have a church van, pick them up, bring them to church. And just all type of people, like, just drug dealers and just all type of people in church at a young age. But I'm so young, I'm not really knowing what's going on. I, I'm, I'm really thinking that these are homeless people because it's, it's a difference between when somebody's homeless and when somebody's on drugs, you know what I'm saying? And I didn't really know the difference at that young age, and I didn't really know what was going on. Like, when I would go in the bathroom and see somebody wipe their nose and stuff like that, I didn't really think anything of it. You feel what I'm saying? I'm, I'm five years old. As we get back into our conversation with Duke Kwan, we're going to shift gears to explore how Duke's life experiences led him to the work he is currently doing as a pastor and co-author of the book titled Reparations. 
Reparations, as it's commonly understood, can be a contentious topic, but Duke's unique approach challenged what I thought I knew about repairing the sins of the past. You know, one of the narratives that you talked about, and I think my exposure to you, and you know, initially just seeing on social media your insightful way of deconstructing those narratives, especially around the issue of race and racism. You recently wrote a book where you describe racism as a cultural disorder and as a narrative, but more than a narrative. Can you unpack that and kind of maybe even see if there is a thread, a connection between the narratives we talk about places and what you see is happening in terms of how we think about race? Kind of break that down for us. Yeah. Well, in our book, Reparations, And by our, I mean myself and my co-author, Greg Thompson, wonderful brother. We decided to describe racism as a cultural disorder. And what we're trying to do there is to say that there's a lot of different dimensions to racism and lots of different ways to look at it. Racism is a set of false ideas, wrong beliefs about people, about oneself, Racism is broken relationships. It is a separation of people sinfully, unjustly on the basis of race, broken community, broken relationships. Racism is broken institutions as well. When those wrong beliefs, wrong behaviors, broken relationships become institutionalized, when those smaller personal forms of racism goes public, as it were, it's all those things, yes. But if that's all that it is, then if racism, for instance, is just wrong beliefs, then we'll start to believe that the only job we really have is to repent of this beliefs, turn from wrong-headed thinking. Then our job just is to give more education, disseminate better knowledge. If we think it's just broken relationships, then all we'll try to do is to get along. All we'll try to do is to heal our interpersonal difference or brokenness. What we propose in this language of understanding racism as a culture and as a cultural disorder is to say that racism is all of those things and more. (laughs) That there's a culture that is both the source and the sum of all those other dimensions of racism that different communities tend to prefer to highlight or focus on and elevate. It's all of those things together And what it actually is, is something closer to an ecosystem. You know, ecosystem, it's uh, discrete organisms and their interrelationships and the environment in which they reside. It's that whole dynamic altogether. Racism is a culture. And the reason why we want to define it as such is to illustrate that it's bigger than we often think. And therefore, also more intractable than we often think it is, too, leading to why something like reparations might be a necessary endeavor to get down to the bottom of what has ripped us apart as an American society, right? So it's, it's a different kind of diagnosis. That's what we were trying to get at in trying to describe it as something that's the entirety of the ecosystem that needs to be addressed in some way, shape, or form. The discrete institutions, let's call them organisms, and the relationships between them, and 
the air and the environment all around us, the ideas, the norms, the values, the things that shape us and direct human behavior and institutional behaviors. That's a social order in its entirety. That's a cultural order. That is what racism is. Mm -hmm. I feel like I want to double click on that because I feel like you're saying something large. So two parts to the question. Like Mm -hmm. one, what do we miss when we don't see it to that level of a cultural disorder? And then two, how does that relate to a theological analysis or response to racism? Yeah. Look, we will bring to the table whatever solutions or tools that we think rightly correspond to our diagnosis, right? And so if we diagnose the problem of racism just as being a matter of um, wrong thinking, wrong beliefs about people, then our only responsibility is repentance. Our only responsibility is to educate people better. So what does that become? It's throwing books at people. And you actually see people doing that. It's like, well, what's my primary job here? It's to assign more reading to my racist uncle or whatever, right? Right. Or if it's just about broken relationships, right? And so this is sort of the preferred view among conservative evangelicals is if broken relationships is the the heart of our problem with racism, then we need to not only repent, we need to get along. So what's the solution? You got to just plant multi-ethnic churches because we just got to get along, (laughs) stuff each other into a room. God will take care of the rest, right? We got to do more things that illustrate our harmony, our unity in Christ and how we get there, well, let's set that aside. Let's do unity. <laughs> let's make harmony by certainly not letting disharmonious conversation to be a part of this. Let's not talk about the past anymore. Let's not do practices which seem to disrupt our peaceful, quote unquote, reconciled relationships. So again, whatever we believe the problem is, that will inform the solutions that we bring to the table. By defining and by understanding racism as a culture, I think what it does for me is it brings us to our knees. Mm. So we're like, shoot, a book ain't going to solve it. Not Mm. one book. Just getting along with my next door neighbor doesn't get to the heart of the problem. Mm. Where did those norms come from? Where did that broken relationship come from? Where did that broken institution come from? And I think biblical thinking prepares us for this way of understanding racism, right? We are a people that believe that our problem with sin and evil is always bigger than we think. I mean, the Christians should be the the last ones to be surprised at a theory that says racism is worse than you might at first believe it to be. Uh, We speak in terms of the world, right? In the Bible, the Gospel of John, especially, talks uh, about the world. Well, that's not just one location. That's an ecosystem of evil, (laughs) of rebellion against God that's captured in this phrase that Jesus himself used often, right? The world, what is that? An ecosystem. Organisms, institutions, and the air in between that binds them all together, right? We're saying there's a corruption an infection with sin that doesn't make everything as bad as it possibly can be, but it certainly means there's no thing that isn't in some way infected by this evil. So to say, by way of analogy, uh, that our Christian biblical thinking, I think, prepares us 
for such an understanding of racism. It informs it and it actually becomes a foundation for us to say, no, what if racism actually is rightly understood as a cultural disorder? And if so, then our calling is to address it as such and not as the small sliver that we often pretend it is. Mm -hmm. We need to cultivate a sense of being people of repair. What are the virtues? What are the spiritual practices that need to be the groundwork and foundation for our total discipleship and transformation individually and communally? What can it look like for us to grow in repentance? So that repenting for racist sins is not an anomaly, but is a normal practice. And not just individually, but corporately, where we're learning to own the we evils that we have committed together, which is a big problem uh, that we face here in the church. I mean, the reason why a lot of Christians reject reparations is because they have no sense of corporate sins of which they are a part. I never did that, or I never committed that. It, it's not just about you. The Bible teaches us this. So developing that corporate practice of confession, of repentance, developing a kind of humility that bears the fruit of relinquishing control. I mean, this is really hard in the American Christian context. How do we form people that know how to let go of control over things? That's a discipleship thing that's upstream from the practice of reparations. But without that, we're not going to be willing to give things up for the good of our neighbor. Yeah, man, so much to unpack there. So let me jump in with this. Like, yeah. reparations can feel like perhaps the most contentious and controversial aspect of a conversation about any kind of talk of racial reconciliation or unity in certain company, right? Not everywhere. Black communities, we had these conversations all the time. Right. But what does the word reparations mean? Yeah. Reparations is built on the root word repair. So specifically, it's talking about the repair of broken things. Generally, it comes to mean, at least to us, the way that we define it in the book as the deliberate repair of theft. So reparations is a direct response to all the ways in which things have been stolen. And what we argue in the book is that white supremacy at its greatest social effect is rightly described as theft, plunder, but in several different ways. There's the theft not only of wealth, that's the way in which most people understand reparations. It's about giving back money. But there's also been a number of different kinds of theft, theft of power, personal agency, political power, even ecclesial power in the church. And there's also been a theft of truth, the truth about African-American identity, the truth of God's word in the Christian context, the truth about American history. We need to then restore and repair each of these different spheres and dimensions of theft. Why is it so important, you think, you know, of all the places to start to contribute to this kind of healing, why start at reparations? Uh, yes, reparations is a conversation, it's a topic and a conversation that's uncomfortable for a lot of people and offensive to most people, mm -hmm. right? Now, according to surveys, you know, only about 20, 25% of Americans think this is a good idea. Pretty small number, one out of four, one out of five. And I believe among Christians, it's even lower. So no one wants to talk about it, but I believe this is the conversation that we should have had all along. Mm. This narrative of 
what happened and now what must we do about it is a very morally simple conversation. A theft has occurred. The Bible says, if someone's been ripped off, you need to return what was stolen, period. But that's a conversation that we've never really had publicly Mm. as a nation and as a church. Mm. Okay. So, you use a couple biblical examples, but in the book, you mentioned that Luke 19 gives us probably the most tangible, visual, visceral account of a biblical framework for reparations. Break that down for us. Yeah. So, Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector. So, famously, tax collectors, of course, rip people off all the time exploited passersby on the road, you know, set up their booth and charged more than they were supposed to. Of course, that was normal Roman practice. That's partly how these guys made a living, but then they would charge even more than that and essentially extort and defraud people on a regular basis. Zacchaeus, upon encountering the love of Jesus, his life has changed, long story short, And as part of his repentance, he says, I'm going to make restitution to, I'm going to restore all that I've stolen, and I'm going to give half of what I owe to the poor. And what he was doing there was not just being generous, he was actually following the prescriptions of the Mosaic law that we find in the Old Testament, Exodus 21, 22, Numbers 5, Leviticus 6, different places where the ethic of restitution, the practice of restitution is taught, which is... Simply, if you steal something, you have to give it back. Yes, you need to confess your sin, but you can't just stop there. I stole something. Sorry about it. Okay, what else? Yeah, you need to give what you stole back to the original owner. Zacchaeus then becomes a New Testament model for what was taught really throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, which was restitution is an enduring Christian practice that is a right and moral response to theft. Yeah, really powerful there. And the aspect of like, that's what true repentance looks like, right? right. So, it's not a works-based system of righteousness. Most of the time, people, if they can even get past the moral argument, Mm. it's the practical argument of like, but who should this be for? And what if I didn't do anything? And you kind of use another passage in terms of the, the Good Samaritan story to kind of unpack what we need to be careful of when we begin to dismiss the notion of repairing what was broken based on its impracticality. Yeah, that's right. No, and, and the Good Samaritan parable that Jesus teaches, we say, is the second of the two parts of the moral logic of reparations according to scripture. And that is not just restitution, but the ethic of restoration. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a story of a man that was robbed, stolen from, and then a stranger comes by, finds him, and then takes care of him. So the Samaritan gives up and gives back to this robbed man, even giving the innkeeper a blank check, charge it to me, he says. But he's a stranger, and he's motivated by love, neighbor love. Jesus and the lawyer that he's talking to describe him as a true neighbor, right? The man who showed mercy. So this to us is an example of a different kind of moral source of reparations, and that is to restore what was stolen from people, even if you yourself were not the original thief. Mm. So you can't say, well... 
according to my calculations and, you know, the history of my family and I've done my research on Ancestry.com and I'm positive I have no ties whatsoever to slavery. In fact, my family wasn't even in this country at the time, which of course is true of my literal family, right? And even during the civil rights era, which of course is what we're talking about too, right? African-American plunder, not just from slavery, but through white supremacy as expressed institutionally and otherwise throughout all the generations, but especially including the Jim Crow era and the civil rights era. Person says, look, my hands are clean. The Bible says, even still, you're called to love. Even still, Mm -hmm. even if that were theoretically completely true, you are called to lay down your life in a deeply sacrificial way to give to these victims of theft. This is the call of neighbor love. And Jesus says, and don't you try to back out of it with all your shenanigans, right? All the ways (laughs) that the priests and the Levites step around the obvious evidence of theft right in front of them. Yeah. And I was really struck by how you quoted everyone from Augustine to Aquinas to Calvin and even the dialogue that was happening in the antebellum period that this had been a robust part of the Christian conversation until the last 150 years. Mm -hmm. What we argue in tracing the history of those conversations is that the notion of reparations started with Christians who were themselves enslaved, right? So we start there. There was a natural moral Christian impulse within enslaved brothers and sisters themselves. But following after that, as early as 1715, the earliest source that we dug up, we have Christians that are making a public case for restitution being made, not only for those who individually owned enslaved people, but also for the Christian community as a whole. And we see that argument being made all throughout the 18th century into the 19th century, where they speak about we, our ancestors, not just I individually, but our ancestors did this to these dear people. We then are obligated to give back to them what is owed to them as a Christian community. It wasn't acted upon frequently, right? And therefore it was lost in the annals of, you know, Christian thought. But that's why we talk about this as being uh, a, a process of reclaiming our actual Christian heritage, our ethical tradition, where reparations was originally in America a Christian idea. Mm, got it. So let's say someone's sitting here listening and they're going, I am persuaded that there is something broken that needs to be repaired. What do I do about that? Yeah. I mean, listen, this is new to most American Christians. And I think it's important for us to continue to deepen and cultivate this new moral sensibility. And so the first thing I would say is not go out and do it. (laughs) I would say, read, deepen, study, pray, learn more. Because this is so brand new to us, we barely even know how to act. And a lot of people have said about our book, look, I wish you had spelled things out more specifically. Give us more of a blueprint. And one thing that we wanted to do in the book was first make the moral case and the biblical case, trusting that when we begin to embody that deeply and richly, that the Holy Spirit will give us the creative energy to find different ways to respond and solve these things. But we also didn't want to, as non-Black people, overly prescribe what we believe needs to be led by local African-American leaders. 
partly because the ways in which white supremacy has ravaged our communities differs in one location from another. And so what we call people to do is go line yourselves up behind black leaders, especially black church leaders in your cities and listen and talk and learn and ask questions to them. Ask them, don't bring your ideas from the outside, ask them what needs to be done and especially locally here in this community. And so inviting people to sort of think of it in that way. So I know that might feel like or sound like a (laughs) non-answer, but I do think there's something to that, to cultivating this as actually a discipleship endeavor and not just as a, hey, how do we just do this and take care of it, where we need to do this together in community because reparations works best as a communal practice and ministry, mm. more so than an individual where you're running out to your neighbor and you're saying, hey, here, here's my reparations. It's like, yo, it, it doesn't quite work like that. How do we work this into the life of our churches? How do we practice this as communities? And just as a reminder, too, that the thesis of our book actually is that this is a Christian church calling. Uh, We're not primarily focused on the federal government or the state government. Our main focus is on Christian communities doing reparations in their local communities in a way that actually repairs local manifestations of the history of and legacy of white supremacy. You mentioned also in the book that, you know, someone asked, why are you doing this to yourself? Delete your Twitter account. Um (laughs) But how I thought it was also an interesting question. Why are you doing this? <laughs> like, wh- why invest in this conversation? Yeah. Well, I think it's really love. And, you know, like I said before, a personal love for people that I know, black friends, sisters and brothers, mm-hmm. and wanting to give voice to a better way. Because I, I believe the church is called to this. I believe the scriptures are clear about this. I believe racial repair is the way forward. Hmm. I believe that the project of quote-unquote racial reconciliation, which by itself is a biblical concept, but has been carried out in a way that has been sub-biblical and has proven not to be fruitful, that it hasn't worked and it needs to be coupled together with other tools and other approaches and other ways of loving better. And I believe that reparations, the repair of the thefts of white supremacy in all of its various manifestations, not only of wealth, but the repair of stolen truth, the repair of stolen power, which the church has supported, participated in as perpetrators and accomplices, and maybe worst of all, as silent bystanders sort of shrugging and letting it all pass right in front of us. I believe we're on the hook to do something. This is the calling of love. Mm. And we need to be uh, people loving in ways that cost us greatly, but that lead us on to the glory and the beauty of Christ in a totally different way. I, I believe if we dare to do this and dare to grow in this way, there will be the glory of Christ emerging from the church in a way that we've never seen before in America. This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. 
This show was produced by Daniel Ryan Day, Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gussman, and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and Kevin Burgess. I also want to thank Mike and Diana for their help in supporting and promoting Where You're From. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.